Okay. Uh, hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Matt Mickleborough. I'm host of the Junior Resource Investing Podcast and Substack, hosting another panel here for, by six today titled Masters of Value, Thriving in Tough Markets. This panel brings together three recent major success stories from the junior resource sector. The junior resource sector itself is unparalleled in its ability to create and destroy wealth. This feast or famine nature of investing in a cyclical sector should be no secret to our viewers here. But even the downturns, outstanding success can still be rewarded. Today's panel offers our viewers a unique and powerful opportunity to hear from three of the biggest stories in the junior resource sector of the past decade, to learn from their stories and gain insights into their individual strategies and choices that contributed to their success. Over the next hour or so, we will discuss their individual stories and experiences, dissecting the events and decision-making processes that contributed to their success and perhaps in so doing, learn lessons to apply to our own investing in the hopes of finding the next major success story, even in a market as unforgiving as today's. Joining me to discuss their sex, their own success and how to identify it are Brandon McDonald, CEO of Fireed Metals, Scott Bertle, CEO of Snowline Gold, and Chris Taylor of Kodiak Copper, who, as you see on the nameplate, also apparently remains the president and CEO of Great Bear Resources. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me here today. I hope you're all doing well. Thanks. I'm at why don't we just jump right into it, right? I think the easiest place to start is just to start by telling us your stories. Uh, and, I'll, you know, I guess, gentlemen, just as we get going here, I'll, you know, maybe I'll take turns occasionally, you know, asking just one or two of you questions. But I think this one, I think it would benefit for us to hear from all of you. Just tell us your story and I'll leave it open-ended for you. How long did it take you for you to find success? Uh, do you want to discuss or, or, or expand upon any doubt or struggle or failures to speak of that you had to face or endure before your success came? And this question can be an open-ended as you want. This can be your whole career or just different targets before you hit your big discovery hole. Brandon, you want to start us off? Yeah, you know, I think rather than talking about maybe what it took for success at Fireweed, I would note that, you know, when, when the market really went into downturn in 2011, 2012, there was some lean years in, you know, 2013, 14, 15. Uh, I think one of those years, I literally didn't make enough money to be taxed. Right. So I, I, I paid zero income tax that year. And there was kind of a there was a discussion between me and my wife about um, do I persevere? Do I reinvent myself? Do I seek a different industry? And the decision was made, you know, that that um, as, as the the Colorado School of Mines recently called it, that mining was facing this great tsunami, that there was going to be a shortage of people, that there was no escaping that it was coming back. Right. That that whether it was a two or three, or as it turned out, eight year or in camp, well, you know, maybe, maybe 11 year and counting bear market. Now um, it had to return at some point. Right. So, you know, a, a key component of the success and, you know, I, I got introduced to the, um, the two original founders of Fireweed in 2016 was just being patient and accepting that um, it's, you know, a nonlinear path. Right. So I think that was, a key thing for us. And I think it was by 2017 when we went public in 2018, I was like, okay, this, this is legit. Like, I think this has changed the trajectory of my career. Excellent. So pre, pre fireweed efforts, eh? and just that, is that tenacity to stay in there? Thanks, Brandon. Scott, what about you? Yeah. I mean, uh, I can definitely uh, sympathize with, uh, with Brandon, you know, it was a pretty exciting time 10 years ago. Uh, well, 
12 and, and 11 years ago. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of rough years in between. Um, and, uh, in my case, you know, I, uh, I started out, uh, prospecting in the Yukon and, uh, and Snowline is really an extension of that. Uh, my father dragged my brother and me out into the bush, uh, from the time we were little kids. And, um, and so it's, it would basically be in working the same, uh, package of properties for, in some cases, decades. And, uh, and it's been about persistence um, on those projects. Of course, you know there are many that have fallen by the wayside, and knowing what to select and uh, what not to, um, uh, or at least you know just keep pushing where you have good results. And um, and yeah, no, we've we've kind of had an interesting trajectory where uh, we finally got some traction, as did you know anybody uh, in in 2011. And uh, we're able to do some really big things with uh, with our portfolio and some ideas and that sort of a thing. But uh, Brandon talked about a year without income taxes. I had better part of a decade um, just kind of trying to make something work. And I was actually just stepping down a totally different patch or a path and had basically just given up on exploration, thinking like, you know, what about an industry that actually, or you know, a, a business model that actually has revenue that seems really innovative and uh, and. Uh, so I was I was headed down that path, and then COVID struck, and uh, and so I was like, okay, well, let's see what we can do with these these properties. Gold's doing something interesting. Okay, let's dust this off and give it one final push. And uh, you know, I'm certainly happy that uh, not the COVID happened, mind you, but uh, that uh, that I was able to you know get another push uh, on these projects, and, and certainly that's uh, proven to be uh, pretty defining for uh, for the career and everything else. That same kind of idea of, of just grinding, right? The, that that dedication of time. Yeah. And and Chris, thoughts to you? Man, you're talking to three guys who have all been flat broke and chasing chasing a dream, you know, for, for many years of their life. Maybe we are not the best three guys that you could be talking to. <laughs> I, I'd say like in the aftermath of the market contraction around 2012, uh, I'd recently been asked to take over as CEO of Great Bear at that time. And uh, I was up to like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, uh, keeping the company going. And even to do the deal that we did on our Dixie project that ultimately, you know, generated $2 billion of value i mean it was it was uh, nobody would finance uh, because the the money just wasn't available so i was in the same position like uh, brandon was just talking about like i remember uh, just anecdotally um you know I remember my my son up in ski lessons and just figuring out at the time talking to some investors that there would be no more money uh, becoming available this was around 2012 and wondering if we could get the $60 back that we'd already paid for the ski lesson that day. So these are the kind of things when you, when you decide that you have a vision that you're going to pursue, uh, you have to stick with that vision and make sure that you give yourself and your team the opportunity to make it come to fruition. And that's not easy to do in a cyclical industry like the one we're dealing with. Hmm. So Chris, I think that you, you touched nicely on the next question I have for you folks. And I'll let you lead it off then, I guess, on that note. Uh, so how much, and you know how much does management skill or personality factor into a project's success? I mean, say that you could hypothetically give the exact same project, you know, to five different management teams, ranging from best to worst, or you know, overly emotional to to not whatever, right? That those that five different uh, points in the spectrum. How different would their outcomes be if everything else was equal? I guess in that in that regard, Chris. 
I'd say uh, wildly divergent outcomes could be possible. Uh, one of the, the key roles as the CEO of one of these companies is to take uh, a bunch of very divergent viewpoints on your board, like get people that actually would naturally fight with each other if you put them in a room, put them together and, you know, kind of deal with that scrabbling, clawing, hissing ball of cats and try to take the best ideas out of all of them. And, you know, I would say even in the Great Bear experience, there's times where we had advice that we could probably sell the company at, you know, $1.50 or $3 a share, uh, $5, $10, you know, and ultimately it was a $29 share price. And, you know, you need a balance of people within your board, within your management team that are going to be sticking in for the long haul, other people that are opportunistic and, Theoretically, or in practice, in our case, uh, you let them hammer it out, give you their opinions and ideas, and sort of the best path. Because uh, if they're not uh, an echoing chamber of agreement, you're going to have more access to a variety of ideas and get a better outcome for shareholders. So yeah, disagreement and diversity of opinion will create strength for you, even as long as you have the same vision, eh? Uh, and and Scott, what about you? What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, as far as uh, different outcomes, I, I agree that, uh, you know, a lot of different management teams uh, could could set you on a lot of different paths with the same starting conditions. But, um, you know, I do think that there are also a lot of those paths could lead to success. You know, there are a lot of different ways uh, to skin a cat and to uh, to advance a discovery. And so I think you're going to see different styles from different companies and different approaches. Uh, but I think that, it, you know, it's important to see that uh, that a company is taking it seriously, that they're, you know, that they're approaching things with integrity, that they're there to explore, that they're there to build value. Um, and there are a lot of ways to do that. But, uh, but of course, the, the industry has, uh, it, you know, a diversity of, of actors, uh, not just in, in the boardrooms, but uh, just kind of across the, the space. And so uh, I think that where we are right now, we're actually in a pretty good place where it's been so lean for so long that, you know, uh, most of the companies that are out there are here to to do good work and to build value um it's been you know the the easy times have uh, have not been here for a long time so um so you know that's a from one standpoint that's a good place to be investing and a good place to be uh looking for new companies hmm. interesting i haven't thought about that, that that the lean years can kind of wash out the the used car salesman or whatever right um and brandon what about you yeah i mean look i think fundamentally certainly in expiration it's either there or it isn't Right. And, and I think there's 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 two kind of offices of the spectrum that that bad management teams can fail to find something that's that's there. And the best management teams will not find something that isn't there. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, even amongst good management teams, there's there's coin flips like like two equally valid decisions. And you pick one and, and what you're seeing here with this panel is kind of a survivorship bias of people who have, for the most part of those coin flips, picked the right one, right? But you can have equally or quite honestly, more talented management teams than certainly me who, who fail to succeed, not because the project's bad, just because they made good decisions that are bad with hindsight, right? So it's, it, there's, you know, a huge element of luck. And, you know, Chris talks about resisting the temptation to sell, but there's also the opposite, right? For, for every great bear that resisted a $3 sale and sold a 29, there's a, um, you know, whatever that had a $29 offer and, and ended up, you know, selling it or, or, you know, going all the way back to 20 cents or something like that. Right. So it's, 
there's no there's no one strategy right so you know what you're going to make me jump around on my questions here brandon because i think that you bring up an interesting point around i mean it kind of comes under what i was going to talk about with risk management but i mean yeah you make a good point about just the luck and then, you know, the, the macro events that you have no control over, right? So I guess maybe what I'll ask, and I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Scott, here. How do you protect against things that are out of your control? How do you protect against the downside for your company, whether that's, whether, yeah, whether that's just macro tailwinds or headwinds, good luck, bad luck at the drill? What, what, what are some sort of risk mitigation factors that you look for in companies that you would invest in or that you practice yourself or that you admire? Well, I think, I mean, one thing that we did in, in launching Snowline, we didn't really have a particular target to explore. We had uh, more of a, a concept, uh, but the concept was a big area with, with a lot of targets within it. Um, and, uh, and we basically brought uh, a whole bunch of different properties to the table. And so, you know, that gave us a lot of different uh, things to try on as we kind of found our groove and, and found our way forward. So, um so that was certainly a way to sort of mitigate the geological risk in starting out and, and launching. And certainly, you know, from that, uh, and that wasn't just picking and choosing. That was, again, like 30 years of uh, winnowing down targets and, and uh, picking what we saw as the best of the best and, and concepts and, and so on. Um, so that was, a you know, a good place to start. But even then, uh, we could have gone through a lot of targets before. Uh, before hitting and uh, we were very fortunate to hit not only our first target but to hit so well on our second target that we've sort of shelled our first target for the time being um and uh and then you know we've been very fortunate in these markets to have that kind of success and to see that uh discovery can build value in apparently any market um and so you know it, from there it's uh keeping a strong treasury so that you can uh, execute um, for you know for years to come. You're not going to be raising with your back to the wall, uh, and I think that that's one thing that, uh, that a lot of companies are obviously facing right now. Is you know they have great management teams, they have great projects, uh, but just the market conditions are so tough that you just get stuck in this financing rut, and then you know people don't want to invest in that company because they're there, and, uh, and it just kind of feeds itself. So uh, yeah, I mean that's something that, not something that we strategically set out to avoid per se, but uh, certainly having a, a strong treasury and, and being able to uh, to execute for, for years is, uh, is key in these markets. Hmm. So yeah, that combination of, of, of uh, diverse land holdings or, or multiple targets plus yeah, the treasury, as you say. Chris, what do you think? Anything, anything clear to add to that? Well, I think uh, there are great points Scott makes. Uh, we also need to remember that, you know, uh, projects aren't marriages. I mean, you, you can fall in, fall into that trap as a geologist. A lot of the time you've got technical ideas that work out in the great bear experience. we had dropped a whole series of projects that were our primary focus. So we tried a number of things. So there's like three or four of them in advance of the Dixie property. So you just have to keep uh, sort of a discipline that you're not uh, thinking emotionally about these things. And if they're not fulfilling uh, the reactions that you require in the market for financing and continuation, uh, you should definitely walk away. The other thing to do is uh, keep a certain amount of cash in your treasury so that you can weather any kind of storm. And in my mind, like roughly you want to keep at least a year's worth of, of cash available so that if there is a sudden downturn or other unpredictable events, like we have a lot of those going on in the world right now, uh, you can survive through that uh, with your shareholder base, you know, intact, your treasury, your company intact, and you can monopolize on op opportunities that become available during those times. And, and to you, Brandon, anything, any additional comments to add to that topic? No, look, I think, uh, you know, of course, there, there's, there's opposite 
ends of it that you know if you if you try to raise to keep your treasury too healthy you know are, are you over diluting right mm-hmm. you know i i think all of us are kind of the opinion that generally what are the first three rules of running a junior mining company take the money take the money take the money right um generally if the money's available and the source is not awful i think the extra treasury doesn't hurt right i think i think 95 times out of 100 you won't regret that decision um but um you know and it's same with like project diversity it's it's a you know it can be a challenge to have too many mouths to feed and and particularly in a bear market right um but i i think yeah you know risk management um is is a big thing in 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 junior mining and yeah healthy treasury some if not project diversity at least some pragmatism about when you need to have project diversity um recognize that your project's heading for a potential cliff uh before the market does and and use your paper to to conduct a transaction before your your value you know goes off that cliff um you know it's a bit cynical but you know the, necessary hmm. well uh, yeah that's an interesting point uh, that balance between fun financing and infinite dilution which is that that, that spiral that scott mentions companies gonna get trapped in this is a follow-up question for all you guys and hopefully we can get a little disagreement here and get some blood flowing here what are your thoughts on streams and royalties and you know maybe as an investor why the heck would I invest in an exploration company if I can just get a nice little royalty company down the way? Uh, what are your thoughts from you know from executives on as of Explore Explorecos? We'll go Chris first for this one. Uh, well, uh, actually, I'm glad you asked me because we uh, took both paths, right? We actually did spin a royalty out of Great Bear, and uh, it depends on the context, right? Like. Um, Oddly enough, and I don't know how well people know this, but the reason, uh, one of the reasons that I was very keen to do the royalty spin out from Great Bear was because at the time that we did that, the project wasn't get, getting taken seriously. And it was a mechanism, you know, if I walked into a bank meeting, uh, like an investment fund meeting, and people would be like, oh, I heard such and such, so-and-so told me something about your property, your property, your project. We don't really think it has, you know, the merit that we're looking for. I said, have you really looked at the data? Well, not really. So the royalty spin out for us was a mechanism to make everybody because they were going to get this royalty spin out. They had to take the project seriously, do deep dives in the data. And it was a turning point in valuation for us because it made the industry as a whole take us seriously. And ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the royalty sold for two hundred million dollars. Right. Like basically it was a it was a very good uh, benefit, additional benefit for our shareholders. So I like royalties if they're put on a project with the right context and that ability to transfer the project into the serious state and a serious evaluation can be one of them. Um, on the other side, like streams, like I haven't worked on a project that got to a stage that was advanced enough to institute a stream on the property. So I think I'd probably leave that to, um, you know, maybe Brandon could talk about streams a little bit more. So there is a there is a place for royalties under the right context. But the junior company itself, um, you know, this is where, like you mentioned at the beginning, Matt, like why do people invest in this business? There's so much uncertainty. There's so much volatility. Well, in a royalty, uh, a royalty company, if you put your money into that, you're very unlikely to see giant multiples on that investment. Whereas you, know, you buy something like Great Bear in 2016 at 10 cents and you sell it for $29 a share, uh, you've made a 29,000% return. Hmm. So you'll never do that with a royalty company itself. So that's the reason that you can invest in the junior exploration sector. 
Yeah, perfect. Yeah, Brandon, maybe I'll go to you. I mean, I think this this balance between the necessity of funding versus that deal with the devil that can kind of start to rob and explore COVID's value. What are your thoughts on these things? Sorry, 2,900%. I just didn't yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, look, when it comes down to project finance, um, royalties can be your cheapest source of capital. You know, part of the uh, appeal of a royal company, royalty company is their low risk that lowers the cost of capital. Um, and it means that it's also a very competitive space. So you get a lot of bids on any royalty or stream sale. Um, by virtue of having a lot of bids, it means, like I said, it, it, it can be cheaper than equity. It can be cheaper than debt. Um, certainly should be cheaper than, than both, right? But the problem is, is that neither of those two impair the asset. Well, debt does, right? Because debt can, debt can take you under. Um, but you have to consider that, right? And, and I think you have to look at, always look at all the tools in your toolbox. I think at the stage we're at now, do I want to sell a stream of royalty? No. Um, if it comes time to build, you know, one, one or both our projects, you got to take a look at it, right? Because it, it, there's, there's always an offer you can't refuse. And I, and I think that you, you look at the amount of project findings, findings that have been done lately, particularly on polymetallic projects, there's almost always a stream sale on a byproduct, right? So um, I think it's be kind of become the norm almost. Mm. Yeah, the polymetallic deposit, you're a little bit different than our other two gents here, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Scott, what do you think though, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think Chris nailed it from the, you know, from the investor's perspective um, of just the, the rationale for uh, for going for one or the other. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I don't have too much to add to, to Brandon's comments on, on it from the industry perspective. But um, yeah, I, I think it's really uh, situational, you know, what your need is, what your paths are, uh, where royalties are. I mean, they are subject to kind of boom and bust on a lesser scale. And certainly, you know, we've seen times when royalties are probably overvalued and, and times when they're not. Um, and, you know, if you, if you have a sense of that and uh, what is being offered for a project, that could be a, you know, a great way to finance. Um, but of course, that comes at a price and that price is paid by every shareholder uh, forever, basically through your production phase. Um, but one thing I think is interesting is looking at, uh, at byproducts, you know, that people aren't necessarily considering and, you know, you might look at a deposit and start to see like, Oh, you know, there's uh, whatever element that uh, we haven't really paid attention to in the assay sheets and it's not economical on its own. But uh, you know, if you were to just, uh, skim this off the side, you could actually pay for a fair bit right now. And, you know, that doesn't really affect the story. So certainly keeping an eye out for, um, you know, for features like that in a discovery and a deposit uh, could add uh, value where there otherwise would be none. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll, I'll take this opportunity to, to to kind of dovetail back to discussions around management. This is where this started was. And just one final question here for you guys. And I think this, you know, ultimately a lot of people listening here is going, they want to to learn what to look for from from people who know what success looks like. And, and you know, you all kind of reference that there takes some luck, but obviously there's skill too, right? That, I mean, it, you are at the head of a ship that's, that's going in the right direction that people you know, take heed of those sort of individuals. So I guess, again, you know, on your reflection of, of, of your own experiences, your own successes and, and what you did or did not do to get where you are, is there advice you'd be willing to offer to people listening to in term, just in terms of the human element, right? In terms of management experience or temperament or actions, right? I mean, what, 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 what would you offer to our listeners in terms of what to look for from that perspective? Maybe we'll go Brandon you first this time. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to um, buck the, the trend and, and go directly against the most common advice, which is not, not directly against it, but, you know, there's this advice that like bet, bet on management teams that have done it before. Right. And, and I, I think I'm going to at least offer a word of caution on that, that I think all of us know a lot of uh, management teams in this industry for whom have had their big win. And um, the company is like a, uh, uh, it's not lifestyle because it doesn't need them to pay their lifestyle, but it justifies going to the conferences. It, you know, keeps them busy, keeps them out of their, their, you know, spouse's hair. <laughs> right. Um, so, and, and sometimes successful management teams who, who have had success in the past, and it's not a life changing amount of uh, money that potentially on the table may not have the hustle. Right. And I think as, as all of us here can attest, um, it, unless you get extraordinarily lucky, it is a grind. Um, and, and even on the, the, the steep part of the success trajectory, it, you know, it, as I was saying to someone like this last year, we've had a lot of success, but I am busier than ever. And it doesn't feel like success in the moment. Right. And, and if you have someone who's willing to take their foot off the gas because they don't want to put the effort in, um, you know, you, you dramatically reduce the chances of, of success. So, you know, I, I would, you know, I guess the, the tip to the, the retail investor would be, um, you know, does the management team have the energy level and the hustle uh, to succeed? Because it almost always requires that. Hmm. That Stanley Cup hangover, eh? Once you're, once you're at the top of the mountain, uh, that drive to keep climbing isn't necessarily there. Uh, maybe, Brandon, not to put you on the spot because I think it's valuable and sometimes it's difficult to, to quantify subjective things like, like you say, like that desire. But, I mean, are there, you know, physical hints of that? That maybe if you're reading, you know, if you talk to management or, or you know, you read their headlines, are there hints to that that you might be able to, to offer us? Or what, do you, what are your thoughts? I think it's going to be very... Uh personal depending on the management team right um you know i i think you get access in this industry to a lot of management through conferences and and calls we're you know we're still small companies so you can usually talk to the ceo right and um i i think you know th th there's maybe no magic checkbox or checklist to figure out that this person is is hustling but i think if you yourself are someone who who works hard you tend to know and you, you tend to know the people who are a little too casual, right? And so I, I think that would just be kind of the tip is like, look for the people who, it's not, it's not busy. It's not always about being busy. It, it's about who are clearly got a very high level of engagement, right? Excellent. Uh, and Scott, is there a different angle on this question you can come from? Yeah, um, well, I, I think Brandon uh, hit the nail on the head there. But, uh, you know, one thing to look at, I, I suppose, would be, the level of focus and uh, you know when you look at a management team um in the industry you do see a lot of folks that are tied up in you know five six different companies um even two and three i i think it can be done at certain levels and by certain people but uh but uh you know seeing a group that is clearly committed to a set of projects i know that kind of flies in the face of my diversification argument earlier but that's within the company you know we're gonna make snowline work but uh um but when it comes to okay well if snowline doesn't work you know we have xyz and and so on i think that that um there's definitely value in that focus um and uh and part of that too is uh you know uh 
the, the team that, that you have in, uh, in management as well. And uh, so you can have, you know, one person focusing on a project and that's great. But if you have a group of, uh, of dedicated, professional, hardworking people who are all focused on the same goal, you know, that company is going to do a lot more than uh, one charismatic CEO who, um, you know, has his, his finger in, in five different companies or her. Yeah, that ability to focus, right? And, and, and so, Chris, on to you then. Final thoughts on this one? Yeah, I'd say if you're if you're an investor looking at these management teams from the outside, uh, the biggest red flag there is, and this supersedes everything else in my mind, is the CEO that talks about a quick exit for that investment. So there's a couple of factors there that the the main one I think that comes to mind for me is that uh, well, two things. So there's a guy that says that you know we're going to get uh, some sort of fantastic return in a short period of time. He's really thinking that he doesn't have the long-term commitment. He or she doesn't have the long-term commitment to see this through. The other one is, um, you know, we're all, we're all in the junior exploration business to basically sell companies. Right. And if the CEO and the management team is messaging to the acquiring parties, the bigger mining companies that they're in it for the short term, those mining companies know that they can wait them out. Whereas like if they're looking at long-term project development, like, uh, you know, sort of a very measured and logical build process and, you know, that that understanding that there is time depth there, um, you know, they're actually paradoxically going to move sooner to, to get that company before that company implements the project in a way that they might not necessarily like and they have to undo work that they think they could have done better. So those are things that I would think about when you're looking at these companies from the outside. Interesting. Well, I'm going to I'm going to follow that up and ask the other two gents. Uh, yeah, red flags, right? Thirty thousand foot view. You're doing your own due diligence as an investor on a company. I mean, what are what are some things that when you see that you you just say thanks but no thanks and walk away? Do you have anything concrete, Scott? What are your thoughts on that one? Um, you know, I, I guess one thing I would look at uh, is that kind of uh, as, in as much as you can gauge it, it can be hard to tell. But yeah, lifestyle, dedication, focus, um, really. Uh, you know, if I if I do see somebody who's doing a, a whole bunch of different things, um, yeah, you just like Brennan said, it's a it's a slog to make these things work, and uh, and you know, so just realizing that, uh, and that's when that's when everything is going perfectly. Uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, you're making good discoveries, you're uh, you're drilling good holes, and that kind of a thing. Um, that's when the workload turns up, and so if you don't see that kind of dedication, then uh, then that uh, would certainly be a red flag. Brandon, what about you? Anything that just makes you a nope out of the room when you see it? Yeah, I, I think when um, when I see or hear management teams that that like the tails wagging the dog, that, that like decisions are are led with marketing that go into like the 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 news flow, then the plan to execute to to generate that right, and and that's um, that's not that that's ass backwards, right? Like you you push the project forward on the schedule that makes sense um, and the time, you know, like with the details to focus that, that produces a news release and then you plan your marketing around that, right? And, and I think that um, management teams that repeatedly engage in, in hard pushes on, um, you know, through, through uh, you know, various marketing efforts, uh, some dubious, you know, um, that to me is like a big red flag of like, okay, that this is about this is about the stock price and the whole company behind it is, is an illusion to support a stock price versus a stock price reflecting the reality of the company. Right. And, and, and I think that's, 
that to me is a big red flag when you know particularly when people talk about their they don't refer to companies they refer to deals right and stuff like that that this is like you know these are all kind of like these red flags of of people who generate paper for themselves and then generate liquidity for for them and their backers to exit right and um not to say that that sometimes you know a bit of a you know deal with the devil to, to partner up with these people can be uh, a terrible idea but uh you know it's it, if that's like if that's how the whole company's focused then yeah no i'm out of there hmm. interesting so maybe i'm going to use that again as an opportunity to ask scott and chris about that the idea of paid marketing right i mean it is uh, i mean is it a necessary evil you know is there too much not enough i mean how much of that is a warning sign for you or what when you see a company what's a healthy or unhealthy relationship with a company that comes to paid marketing scott and then chris after yeah, I mean, there's that's a, a really good question, and it's uh, like a lot of the answers so far. There's a, a balance to be struck, I think, but there's certainly uh, you know integrity be, to be accounted for. Where uh, I, I think there's too much in our industry where you see marketing that presents as maybe journalism uh, without quite as big of a you know paid promotion uh, banner as it should have on it. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, you do have to, as a company, you do have to get the word out there and, uh, and often, you know, those are the channels that are available. So there's certainly, um, and then you've got to think about your own credibility too, as a company, as you're, uh, pumping your story and, you know, how loud you want to go on at what level of results. And, uh, you know, we've tried to just, uh, keep things direct, uh, you know, let the, let the rocks basically tell the story. Um, but, you know, the rocks uh, have been sitting there for 92 million years. So, uh, so they need a little help um, from time to time. And so, uh, yeah, I think there's a balance to be struck there. Uh, I, I do think that there's, there are cases where there's way too much promotion and there are avenues that you wouldn't want to go down as a company in terms of uh, kind of over promoting and potentially even, you know, putting a the wrong foot forward in, in the way that you present the story. Interesting. And then on to you, Chris. Well, there's a big difference between communication and marketing. And those are two very distinct entities. And like, uh, if you pump a lot of money into marketing, you increase the volatility of your share price, right? So, you know, if you think about a share graph, you want it to go from like the ideal share graph is completely linear and it goes from some value next to zero where you know all the smart people buy just about every share and up to some incredibly high value over here and there's just no volatility in the middle you do marketing you get lots of volatility through that process and excessive marketing turns a deal from uh it turns a company sorry i almost said it backwards turns a company into a deal right something that you trade whereas what you want to do is build a loyal shareholder base that keeps the shares and over time they increase the value and so that's what we did with great bear we took the the method that you know instead of marketing uh i would put the slogging hours in like brandon was talking about earlier like scott was talking about earlier and i did these uh, lots of bob ross style uh, artistic communications where you get leapfrog out and you're doodling all over the screen you're just trying to make sure your shareholders understand the story and if they understand the story and they keep the shares, you keep the volatility down and you can build that value over time. So, you know, by the time we sold, I think we were we were still over 60, 65 percent retail shareholder owned, you know, so that was incredible. It transformed a lot of people's lives. And really, that was because we focused on communication instead of marketing. 
Yeah, I, I think I, I, would, I would just add that, you know, it doesn't have to, marketing promotion doesn't have to be a dirty word, right? Like mm-hmm. when, when done right, it should lower your cost of capital. But the key thing is, is it's lower to the cost of capital to do what? It's to raise money to do the real work, right? Not not to feed the marketing beast, right? And, and you know, if you market too aggressive, as Chris says, you, you, you replace good shareholders with bad ones. Because someone who might have held from $1 to 10 um, might sell at 180 if the jump from one to 180 is too quick, right? If it makes them nervous, right? If they see a lot of volatility, right? So, so you know, you can't engineer a perfect chart, um, but you, you know, you can understand that that if you're already pretty choppy, it's not the right time to add fuel to the fire. And so I, I'm going to keep going. I'll just remind the audience. I'm happy to have questions here. If you're listening in, get some questions here. We'll have a Q&A probably in about 15 minutes here, 10 or 15 minutes. I want to, you know, you all three of you are discussing this and the issue of integrity, right? And I think that's kind of what we're circling here is this concept of integrity where, you know, the company has to have integrity in terms of how they approach things and pumping, right? Because pumping can be done by marketing, but also by companies themselves, right? And so I guess maybe the question I have then in terms of, again, trying to quantify a very subjective conversation is what are some telltale signs that you get that maybe the company or a company is whether it's from its news releases or how it reports its assays. I mean, what are some so what are some warning signs that you would get from a company that maybe they're not fully on the up and up, or as you say, it's more of a deal and less of a project, or more of you know that, that short-term pump style thinking. Um, Brandon, I guess, how do you feel about that one? Do you want to lead off there? Yeah, I mean, I, I um, the only time a, a company fails to, to discuss honestly risks or is dismissive of risks. Um, or is painting unrealistic potential outcomes. Um, I think that's something to watch out for. I, I think all three of us here have been pretty good about being um, honest discourse, right? And and um, that that gives you the lo- shareholder loyalty, um, even though short term maybe it doesn't give you quite the you know the initial buy-in, right? Um, so it's tempting. It's tempting, and you're you're you know, online town halls or your at your conferences or, or whatever to, to just be a little bit, you know, more optimistic. But at some point, optimistic becomes unrealistic, right? And and it's a it's a line to walk. Hmm. Interesting. And and Scott. Um yeah, I mean uh you know, I think that uh Brandon basically covered it um yeah uh just getting into a place where uh if you see a company that and this that goes back to the first uh, or the, the last question of just uh where you've kind of doubled down on um promotional efforts and and you know your stock price is, is way ahead of itself um yeah uh well, maybe I'll try to ask you a more specific question here, Scott, if you don't mind. I mean, you know, things that come to mind for me are, you know, smearing grades or or not giving true widths or or uh, even equivalent ounces. I mean, are there things in there that, and it's always, you know, it's a tool that can be used or misused based on on, on the, the owner, right? But are, are there things in there that you look for if you're reading uh, reading in through a news release that you're thinking, okay, you know, check one, check two kind of thing. Anything there you can speak to? Yeah, I mean, when you look at uh, at that, I think those are those are excellent points. And you know, one that from the exploration stage that I, this has always kind of bugged me. But again, I've also kind of uh, 
use it especially as a prospect when you're just trying to show like here's the continuity mineralization but you have to you have to uh look at it is when you zoom out and show a soil anomaly at like you know at the one to two hundred fifty thousand scale and there's just this big red blob but uh if you actually zoom in on that you see like okay there's a high soil there a high soil there a high soil there um you know you have to you have to pay attention to how uh results are, are presented in that way and certainly having some uh, some technical uh expertise or, or advice or just kind of uh, digging into the data a little bit uh, goes a long way Awesome. And now that's one I've got a quick follow up, but I'm going to I'll let I'll let Chris get in here first before I, I pursue that one. Yeah, consistency and transparent disclosure. Grade smearing is a big deal in our industry uh, where you have, you know, whatever, uh, 10, 10 meters of 10 grams can look very different depending on where the where that uh, grade comes from. Right. So it's one one thing I found pretty funny looking at Scott's core uh, back at the BMO conference. Uh, number one, uh, it was just incredibly consistent. So I was uh, I was shocked and delighted to see that <laughs> back when back when I looked at that stuff. And uh, I think the, the the finer detail the company can provide that shows that they're not uh, smearing grades and selectively disclosing. Uh, those are those are good um, good good points that the companies can follow. You know, release to release and consistently over time. And so, yeah, the, the question that came to mind while Scott was speaking for me was, you know, so much of this industry is so heavily technical, right? The geophys, geochem, that analysis. And, and so is there an opportunity for the layman or laywoman to achieve success? I mean, how essential is an, under, is a, is an advanced understanding of the geological side of things? How essential is that to success as an investor? And I guess, again, you know, maybe more concretely, if you're trying to switch from, from theory to practice, what do we do? You know, I'm not a geologist. I, I wish I was. I'm trying, but I'm just not, right? <laughs> but like, how do I, as just a, a random Joe off the street, how do I find success in such a heavily technical industry? Maybe Scott, I'll ask you just because that's where we were going from there, and I'll head to Brandon from there. Sure. You know, and I think that uh, I think getting some measure of familiarity uh, is important. And there's a spectrum of of deposit styles and types where you know, even experts are going to disagree on uh, what the merits of a certain discovery are. Uh, you know, you could get a, a huge range of, of disagreement on what's actually there based on a, a series of drill results. Um, and then there are simpler deposits uh, where uh, they hang together nicely and, you know, it doesn't take much to uh, to piece it together and, and everything in between. And I think that, uh, you know, without years of studying it and years of being on the ground and, and understanding these deposits, uh, you know, you might not get there, but you'll get, you know, you can get uh, pretty far along um, with just digging into a few books on, uh, on you know, resource estimation or just, uh, or digging into some case studies of companies that have done it. What did that look like? Uh, you know, there's some really good, uh, good work. Uh, Mike Power uh, from uh, Silver Range put together a video a while ago where he just put like, here are the footprints of a whole bunch of different uh, deposits and you know this is what they look like. And so just kind of familiarizing yourself with that kind of a thing uh, can be really valuable. And I think that, that was a really interesting example that Chris gave when he uh, talked about the rationale for spinning out the royalty company uh, in that you know people just weren't doing the work, they weren't getting it. And so uh, you know the, the information was there, but the investors, even the technical investors, were not putting in the time to look at, okay, you know, what is this thing actually? Like, yes, that's a nice drill result. Okay, well, I heard this rumor that it's actually not a good drill result. Um, you know, 
what about just actually looking at the data? And so, uh, you know, you don't have to be an expert to just dig out the sections, look at the volume, look at grades, look at how things might be hanging together or might not be hanging together and, uh, and, and going from there. So I think uh, uh, it's kind of asymptotic, like a little bit will get you a long way. And to, to get, you know, into that upper percentile, you're going to have to spend years and decades, uh, you know, breaking rocks all over the world. But, uh, but a few books, a few articles, a few YouTube videos can, can get you pretty far versus just blindly throwing darts at a very volatile and risky industry. You mentioned something back there I thought was interesting. It almost uh, mirrors our discussion around marketing. And sometimes you do need that story to get out right if people aren't getting it, that, that ability to, to amplify your voice. Brandon, what about you? Well, I'm reminded of that expression of um, if you think you're communicating and your counterparty doesn't understand, you don't understand what communication means. right? <laughs> and, and so this is like going way back to what we were talking about earlier about um, good technical communication and, and non-technocentric communication is critical, a good highlights to every news release. And, and, and a, as a retail investor, if you're looking at various companies to invest in and you're failing, you're struggling to understand a company, um, if you're struggling to understand why you might buy, you're also going to struggle to understand when you should sell, right? Hmm. Um, so that may, maybe stick with the companies you feel are, are communicating well, uh, understanding that that you run the risk of people who are oversimplifying things. But, you know, there, there are uh, lots of good people on, on social media who talk about these things. Uh, a, a friend of mine, no back, no technical background, um, just got hired by a major in their, in their equipped dev team, right? Ba based on um, being introduced to him through his work on social media, right? So it's, um, you'd be surprised how good amateurs can get when you, when you put a, you know, keen mind into it. Makes me feel better about myself there. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> what about uh, Chris? What about you? Well, just generally for investors, uh, I'd say invest in companies that are run by the type of person you would expect to be running them. Like exploration companies should generally be run by geologists. Um, mining companies should generally be run by engineers. And companies that need to transform should generally be run by accountants and lawyers. And uh, if you see a mismatch in any of those main uh, leading positions, it's probably, you know, a bit of a red flag. You you don't want to jump in on something that's being run by, you know, again, a, a promotional team primarily. Like, you know, what you're going to get is a lot of volatility. So these guys that you've got, uh, like I know I'm actually in great company, like uh, Brandon and Scott, like, well, I know Brandon quite well. We were in the same office for many years and I've met Scott and uh, these are two of the smartest guys uh, in the industry uh, of their sort of age group that I know. So, you know, have a conversation with the CEO of a company if you're really interested in them. And if they, you know, kind of get the hairs up on your back because they're promising a bunch of quick returns and they don't seem to understand the technical material, I'd walk away. Okay. Well, good guys. Uh, I have one last question here. I'll turn it over to the audience. I think this is one of those classic ones where I'm going to try to hold your feet to the fire and try to get a specific company out of you. But if you've got to defer, maybe I'll ask for just characteristics, but any picks that you want to give for companies that you think could be the next big success? Obviously all three of you guys have a lot of success under your belts. What do you see coming down the pipeline in terms of other potential companies and yeah, if you're if you don't feel like you can, if you're not just going to name, if you're just going to name your own company, right? Then uh, tell me, tell me what are some characteristics maybe to look for instead? How about uh, Chris? How about you? I'm just going to get my stock ticker up here and see what I own. 
Um, <laughs> so um, I would just say uh, diversify, right? Like the the major successes, like the companies, like if you look at a Great Bear type discovery or, you know, recently a Snowline type discovery, these, they're not really predictable. Like you can kind of get a feel for they're in the right area, they're the right people, uh, but you can't put all your eggs in one basket. So I just give you a general advice. I can't can't give you a specific name, but you don't want to go all in on one name. Uh, it's not a healthy uh, way to manage your your investment income or your future investment income. So you want to diversify, and that would be the key that I would give you. And the teams that consistently perform, like always, look at it. Like you have to look at these as an investor, as a stock. Like if you. If you have a position in a company that's worth a million dollars, would you take a million dollars today and buy it at that valuation right now? Or would you maybe buy something else and don't get caught in the trap uh, that, you know, you now own a lot of something that you wouldn't buy at that valuation again. So you, you want to make sure that you diversify at every stage in the process, even to some extent with your winners. Hmm. I think that's interesting. It kind of goes back to that survivorship bias that Brandon talks about. For every one person on social media that's talking about making 20 million bucks off a single company, there's 100 people that are belly up because they lost everything, right? That diversification and risk management, right? Uh, Scott, what do you think? Yeah, um, just to build on that or, or to kind of fine tune it, uh, diversity is important, but I think being uh, able to look at expected value, I mean, it's a tough calculation to make, especially in the junior mining space. But, uh, but, you know, I had people for, in the case of Snowline, you know, I had people telling me that they missed the boat at 45 cents. And of course, I still have people telling me that they missed the boat today. Um, but, you know, it, just looking at companies, looking at results and understanding them for what they are and where that puts the company, you know, I would say, and now I'm going to put on my promotional ad here, but, you know, I would say that the Snowline at 45 cents was a heck of a lot uh, riskier in terms of an expected value standpoint than you know, it is today at $5 uh, because, you know, we have, if you look at the, what has happened uh, in terms of our technical success and what we actually have in terms of the drill results coming together out there, um, you know, sure, it's, uh, it's still risky, but it's, it's not, uh, you know, that proverbial one in a thousand anymore. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, you multiply the, the odds of success by the upside and sure, you know, we might not go up 20 times from here, but, uh, uh, but, you know, the, the the chance that we are going to go up from here, I would argue, is, is a lot better than it was then. So, um, so yeah, just kind of being able to look at companies in terms of where they are on that spectrum. And, and I don't mean to just do some lines horn here. I, I mean that just as a, an example where, uh, you know, getting in there, understanding the results, um, you know, that's that's key. And Brandon? Yeah, you know, I, I have a uh, what would generally be considered a terrible investment strategy, which is I invest with friends. Uh, um, but um, that worked with Great Bear and it's you know worked with other companies for me. And because um, we're lucky because we're industry insiders, we're chatting to these people all the time at the conference. We're getting, you know, Scott's talking to me about some other company over beers and, and yada yada. So you get a lot of intel that, that the average retail person is is going to struggle to get. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I'm so busy. I don't have time to manage a portfolio. I do not trade. Uh, you know, most people try to talk about limiting themselves to, to, I only should trade this much, right? Trading more than that doesn't make sense. I try to force myself to trade because otherwise I sit on my losers too long, right? So I, I, I force myself to make tough calls. Um, but, you know, like ultimately I, I look for 
projects that have some, if, certainly for exploration, projects that have some merit. If I'm looking for that 10 bagger, it's got to have some merit. I have to understand what they're looking for. The, the, the prize that they're looking for, I have to have some sort of precedent that, that yes, that's, that's good and that will transact. And then I have to believe the team has the, the brains and the hustle to make it happen, right? So, um, you know, I think two recently that I, I own are like, you know, Kingfisher, um, you know, with Dustin there. Um, he's done a great job. Um, and Ridgeline with Chad, um, you know, another great young geo who, who I know is onto something good and is super smart, right? So um, those, you know, are they going to be successful? I have no idea, right? But I, but I feel like there's, you know, a good test for me is the gut test. Do I feel like a little bit yucky giving some of my money? Um, and if I don't, then it's like probably the right move. All right. So excellent. And then this and the natural follow up here from the audience here. We're into the Q and A. So again, keep the questions coming. We've got just a, a nice ten minutes left. How active are you guys in the market? I mean, are are you you know active in the space in terms of yeah, buying and selling, trading? As Brandon says, I mean, do you have some favorites that you just hold long term? How how active are you in terms of your portfolio, portfolio and investing in companies other than your own, Chris? Yeah, I, I keep um, it's relatively small positions, but I do invest in companies that I like Brandon said guys that I know and I've known for a long time. So that's an advantage that we have in the industry. Uh, like I bought some uh, Onyx recently, which is Darwin uh, Green put that together and he went to school with me. So, I mean, there are specific names. Uh, so I tend to, I tend to, like I said, I follow my own advice and try to diversify with small entry positions. And as the company uh, continues to do what it talks about, then I would, uh, you know, increase my ownership. Scott? Um, yeah, the, I'm closer to Brandon's boat here where, uh, you know, I just, uh, for a long time, didn't have the money for a portfolio and we still don't until we uh, have some real success as a company, but, uh, but ultimately, um, yeah, I've just had my head, uh, down and nose to the grindstone with snow line for so long that, uh, you know, I, I try to pay attention to the general markets a bit and to, and to various companies just for, uh, benchmarking and seeing what else is going on and see what strategies are and that sort of a thing. But, uh, but I haven't found the time to, to try to put together a portfolio. Hmm. And then, yeah, Brandon, you kind of answered that one already. Well, uh, questions here, still more coming in some, some project specific questions here. Maybe I'll ask this, this later one from Nate. Uh, what do you guys serve in your camp at night for meals? <laughs> well, I can tell you that, that, um, uh, you know, I, I guess Chris at, at, uh, at Dixie, you know, was it most people mostly staying in hotels and houses and stuff like that? Yeah. There was not a lot of camping going on, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it's very different for Scott and I, cause I got to tell you that you will have like an insurrection on your hand <laughs> if you do not serve good food, right. And in, in remote camp. So it, it's, it's not something the, the, the marginal cost of being cheap there, um, is is so not worth it right i i, I think you got to have good, good good cooks for sure there's Scott, a huge opportunity cost of bad food right <laughs> well and it's like i had and also you know you you come to camp and i'm sure anyone who goes on a site tour you, you go into the kitchen and there's always lots of fresh baked goods and stuff like that and so every time i go to camp it's like oh why am i on my third whatever I, I would never eat this at home but you're in camp and it's there and it's fresh right so um Definitely, definitely a risk to the waistline. Spending a lot of time. <laughs> Scott, what do you think about your dietary needs up there? Yeah, I mean, we've got an incredible kitchen staff um, 
who work very hard and prepare three incredible meals a day every time I go there. It's, it's like Brandon says, uh, you know, it, it's hard to um, hard to stop. But uh, it, they've kind of uh, set themselves. We, you know, we started small and they were they went all out for this this crew of like twelve people, and then that became the expectation. So I kind of sympathize with them that now they have you know this crew of fifty people all the time, and uh, and they've set a very high bar, but. Nonetheless, I know everyone is, is super appreciative and uh, and going back to investor tips, not that you can necessarily just wander into someone's canteen and, and sample the food, but, uh, you know, that might be another uh, good uh, aspect to look at and see how seriously the company's taking things. <laughs> and do you, want, do you want to add more there, Chris, or do you feel like you got your got your shots in? No, I think there's only so much I could talk about Tim Hortons and, uh, you know, <laughs> pub dinner. So, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't hard for our guys. Yeah. Uh, question from Dad's Rock for Scott. Just where do you figure you are, Scott, with Snowline? I mean, his questions around the Lassan curve. I mean, how much meat on the bone do you think is left for exploration? And when do you when do you foresee, you know, a, a, a line in the sand right now or planting your flag right now? When do you see yourself maybe transitioning to development rather than Explore Co? Yeah, well, you know, I think there are kind of two answers to that question, maybe two different paths. Um, one is Valley, where... Uh, you know, we've done a, a lot of good drilling. We still have a lot to figure out there. Um, and we're still, you know, putting, uh, we're, we're still pre-resource on that discovery, but it's clear that there's a, a substantial gold system um, at Valley. And so yeah, I think that we have a, a long way to go there uh, just based on what we have um, and, uh, and, and what it looks like to us uh, and how it would stack up against uh, other discoveries and, and just, you know, what its NPV might come to be. And obviously those are, very forward-looking statements, but uh, but we feel very strongly about uh, about the Valley discovery, and we're we're very excited about it. But the other thing that that does is uh, it it's a great proof of concept for the region that we're exploring in. Uh, we went out there in a very underexplored area. This is one of many intrusion-style targets that are other styles of gold mineralization in the immediate vicinity or within you know tens of kilometers of there. Um, it seems to be a very fertile area, and uh, so I think we'd be remiss in just focusing on. The development of that one asset, uh, having discovered something like that so quickly, and just to say, okay, well, this is it. Let's you know, let's hunker down. We'd also be remiss if we were to just ignore it and then just continue to uh, to go and look. So uh, that's a that's a conversation we're having internally, and uh, we still have a lot of room on the exploration side of, of Valley as we move it ahead for now. But uh, you know, in, in another year or two of time, uh, it'll be you know come time to figure out uh, exactly how to optimize the the value of that discovery. Hmm. Thank you, Scott. And now maybe the last couple of questions here, and it'll almost be the flip side to what I just asked Scott here. You know, he's coming at this from an earlier stage, obviously, than than the other two gents. Um, and I'm going to ask Brandon, this question here from Will, uh, what feature of fireweed do you think motivated the Lundin family the most? I mean, what, what was it do you think was the deciding factor for them? Yeah, you know, that, that was a five-plus-year conversation with them, right? And, and really it was... Um, there was no single moment, but I think it was the continued exploration success and that realization that um, there's a lot more there, right? And and I think they've had so much success at the the fields with the whole Vicuña district, which they split up because each project in a, you know had its own merits. Um, that you know you start to recognize like okay, this is like becoming something really really big, right? And and I think when they recognized it, that it was on that trajectory, that's when they got very serious about it. And I think that's, you know, similar to something that, you know, Chris went through and, and you know, Scott's going through of, of that, you know, as, as this, you know, 
bigger sort of investors start to realize, okay, this is not a run of the mill. This is not a typical gold deposit or, or gold project or whatever. When now, now you've got people interested in it because they recognize that it's kind of like becomes a generational, near generational discovery. Hmm. And, and Chris, I was going to ask you similar things, but I think, I mean, the, the exceptionality of that, of, of the deposit for Great Bear I'm referencing here uh, sort of answers the question. So maybe I'll give you one last question here. We'll call it after this. Just someone asking, this is Nate here asking about Beaver Creek in, gen, in, you know, in specific and also just the conferences in general. You know, speaking to you as a, you know, as a representative of Kodiak, I guess, Chris, and last words here for you, obviously, how important are conferences to you telling your story? You know, you know, it's not necessarily accessible to retail all the time, right? How important are these conferences to, you know, you as an executive of a, of an exploration company trying to make a go of it? Uh, they're important for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is as the executive, you get to, you get to read the body language off of your peer group and listen to the things they're saying when you're in meetings with each other. Right. So, um, zoom has been a big help. Like, um, you know, 2019 pre zoom for me was just a nightmare of travel. It was about 50% travel. So, you know, when these guys were talking about uh, having to put the, you know, grinding it out, you know, when you, when you're onto a major discovery, it was, it was pretty brutal. Uh, so, you know, these conferences actually give us a mechanism to meet in person with the people in our industry, uh, and the people that are making making decisions in the industry. And that's invaluable for uh, really getting a feeling for not what's uh, necessarily in the, uh, the the publicly messaged domain, but what you think these people are really thinking, you know, uh, kind of behind the scenes. It's not inside information. It's like reading the room. So they're really important uh, for that. And then obviously, um, you know, you can follow up with uh, questions about uh, potential deal flow investment investor sentiment, like uh, upcoming investor trends. Um, if you're looking for projects in a company, there's really no better place to do it than where all these people with all these portfolios are collected in one place. And I would say that the executive for you know most uh, even small exploration companies should be attendees at these things if they can be. Excellent. Don't mean to cut you gentlemen out of that question here, but we are at the hour here, so I'll call it. Thank you, Brandon, Scott, and Chris. It's been a strong discussion. I hope that the listeners found this enlightening as well. Obviously, head over to, over to their websites, Fireweed, Snowline, and, and Kodiak. Should probably need no introduction. As for me, Matt Mickleborough, Junior Resource Investing. Thank you for your time, and thank you for participating in this recording, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Have a good day.